As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everybody. Tina Brock, Producing Artistic Director here at the Idiopathic Radiculopathy Consortium in Philadelphia. I'm your host for Into the Absurd, a virtually existential dinner conversation. I do hope you'll join us the next 50 minutes. Sit back and relax as we explore the lives, the hearts, the minds, and the spirits of creators in Philadelphia region and around the world. And good afternoon, everyone. I'm Tina Brock, your host for Into the Absurd and the producing artistic director here at the Idiopathic Radiculopathy Consortium. Today, I am coming to you from the Guggenheim, and we are going to be talking about the practice of art, um, the way in which museums as institutions for art, the ways in which we can put education and art together in the community to um, bridge bridge all kinds of um, understanding and create new collaborations. And we're going to be doing that with our our guest, Dr. William Crow, who is the director of the Lehigh University Galleries, and he's a professor of practice in the School of Art, Architecture, and Design at Lehigh University. So all that is coming up in the next 50 minutes. I am so very glad that you are with us today on this very special day. Thank you if you're coming in to us on Zoom. If you're here joining us at the Zoom table, thank you so much. And uh, if you are coming to us on Facebook Live, if you head on over to the IRC's website at some point during the week and sign up for our mailing list, you'll be sure and get all of the information on all the guests that are coming up in the weeks to come. This is our way of uh, sharing this time with you while we can't be with you on the stage and it's our way of looking into the practice the passions of artists and creators and people that are just doing amazing things in the community at during uh, this very existentially challenging time, which hopefully just got a little bit less existentially challenging today for all of us. Though with COVID still out there, we'll be here on Saturdays at 5 p.m. So I want to say a big thank you to Erica Holscher, who is the Associate Artistic Director here at the Idiopathic Radiculopathy Consortium, and to Bob Schmidt, who is our Ways and Means Coordinator. They are flying this plane from the Guggenheim today, and we appreciate them for all of their work. Dr. William Crow is our guest today, and we're going to talk about he's such a fascinating, fabulous background in both the practical aspects of art and education. And uh, I just want to get to this conversation right away. So, Dr. William Crow, welcome to Into the Absurd. Hi, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks oh, for having me. Oh, I am. I'm just delighted. Um, I have to tell you that um, you know today, whether you know, being exhilarated, art comes to mind when we are at times where things are are not 
you know, forgetting that we're not out of a pandemic yet. Art can be that great salve for us. Um, and I was at one of your old stomping grounds, you know, about a month and a half ago up at the Met, just in a respite, uh, trying to get away from it all. And it just reminds me of, of the ways in which art is so very important to our humanity. And obviously, you know that because that's the practice that you have. But um, I just want to thank you for that, for all of, for being a part of that and for the work that you do to educate others in the community on that. And I wanted to start with you, your education and um, understanding and letting the audience know that your degrees in uh, your, your BA, right, from Wake Forest, and that was in the romance, was it romance languages and studio art as well? Like, a, was it a dual? Exactly. Um, and then moving on to um, the work at Hunter College uh, and your master's in, is it painting? In painting. In, in painting. And then cognitive uh, studies and your PhD at Columbia. Tell us, uh, tell me about when you started, was your goal to be working as a fine artist? Um, it was, at least for a good while. I um, Honestly, I was kind of a latecomer to art. I, I grew up in a really small rural town in southwestern Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, near the Appalachian Trail. Um, it's beautiful countryside. Um, not a lot there, kind of culturally speaking, but incredible landscape. Um, and, you know, I, as I grew up, I, I loved making things. I made models and sketches and I, um, you know, completely annoyed my parents. I was always like constructing something out in our yard and, you know, doing all sorts of things like that. But it really was not until high school, really, when I had a, an extremely dedicated and passionate art teacher where I realized, oh, like this is a whole field. <laughs> like mm -hmm. one can actually become an artist and this is, you know, a real um, area of inquiry. Um, so I pursued that and when I went to college, I, I was a double major, as you mentioned, in um, studio art and romance languages. Um, did not grow up going to museums at all. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, my my very first experience at a museum was kind of terrifying. <laughs> I, my parents took me to the Southwest Virginia Museum of Science, um, which at that time was in an old mansion that looked like um, the house from the film Psycho. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was filled with all kinds of gadgets and uh, they were con uh, creating uh, lightning bolts and electricity and um, there was one exhibit where you had to put your hand into um, kind of an enclosed space that you could not see to be able to feel fossils. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember running out of that room screaming. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I really did not grow up going to museums or really being that immersed in art. It was really something um, when I got into college, um, explored it further and then um, eventually saw that as a path for myself. And you and and the path was working practically as an artist. Did that is that how it 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 started out? It was. In, I mean, school. I think well, like a lot of people who end up in museums, my path is not very linear. It's kind mm -hmm. of circuitous. But uh, right out of college, I actually taught high school for a couple of years, so I did that. I was a uh, teacher at a school in New Jersey that was part of a Benedictine monastery. So I, I lived at the monastery for a while, and I made paintings and I taught. Um, and so that was a really fascinating experience. And then, like you said, I, I ended up uh, moving back into the city. I went to Hunter for my mm -hmm. MFA. 
um, and really had the ambitions of becoming a visual artist. I, um, I had some success showing my work in group shows and some solo shows. Um, I had some artist residencies. Probably the most notable one was I was an artist in residence uh, in the World Trade Center um, on the 91st floor of Tower One. And so I was there for a year as part of their uh, World Views program, the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council. Um, and, and fortunately was there from 2000 to 2001 and moved out in the summer of 2001. Um, but I, um, yeah, I, I showed my work, I practiced and I, I still make art, um, but I've also come to realize that you can make art in many different forms. Even if you are a museum director, uh, there are other ways of making art as well. Mm-hmm. Now the Columbia, the PhD in cognitive sciences. What was the shift, the addition of that, of that path of inquiry? I mean, I think one thing that I've always been interested in is, is how people think, you know, what's going on inside people's heads, you know, how, how do they really, um, you know, even consider works of art. Like, what do they think about them? How do they form evaluations about them and judgments about them? And so um, I had done my MFA in painting. I was working in museums. I was uh, working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, in my role at the Metropolitan overseeing education, uh, we were also very concerned with measuring things. You know, like, how, how do we really know that people are having an impactful experience or you know how how do we really assess what's happening um, through these programs that we offer or interactions with works of art so I, I kind of in a very backwards way stumbled into the field of cognitive science so um, you know how people think how they use different thinking skills um, I, I started a program at Columbia where I was a little bit of the the odd bird I have to say most of my peers were really interested in scientific reasoning or mathematical reasoning skills. And even my advisor was really most interested in um, argumentation and some other areas. But I I wandered my way into that field and I'm really glad that I did. And it ended up doing a a dissertation on, um, basically on, on how our unspoken beliefs about knowledge and where knowledge comes from affects the way that we make judgments um, in the world, Mm. not only about works of art, um, but I ended up doing an empirical comparative study where I I did some tests um, among different age groups, looking at how people make judgments and whether they use criteria or not. And actually one of the tasks that I had them do was um, uh, picking a political candidate. (laughs) Um, uh, and this was nine, 10, 11 years ago now, but had, um, had them, um, kind of, you know, um, explaining their choices about picking political candidates as a comparative study with works of art. And it it was fascinating to see like where people converge, where they diverge and that, uh, it, it is, it's a really wonderful field. Just to jump back a little bit in the work about uh, what you talked about measuring uh, people's experiences and how they um, how they come to the work, and I'm talking about in a museum specifically right now. Did you ever look? Uh, was there any, ever any part of the study that did actually go go into museums? Or I guess the better question is, how do you measure that as an as a, per, a person working as long as you have an education? How how do you know if what you're doing 
is working? Yeah, it's a, a huge question. And there's, there's many sides to that question. You know, there are many people that would say, well, why should we measure it? Like we, we all get pleasure and enjoyment and excitement out of experiences with art, whether it's theater or music or visual arts. Um, and then other people might say, well, you know, how do we know that we're uh, getting the results that we want? Or how, how do we know when we're actually having an impact on someone? So I, I was kind of forced into that area, part, partly because of my interests and in how people think, um, but frankly, partly because the museum world and the nonprofit world was very quickly moving in that direction. In, in the early to mid 90s, um, the whole world of philanthropy moved away from what was called reputation-based funding, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you know charities and foundations and philanthropists stopped giving money to places just because they thought they were doing good work and they wanted to really see what kinds of measurable outcomes people were having. So, so the kinds of measures that, um, that I'm interested in and that we conducted in the museum are, you know, how do people change in terms of shifts in attitude, knowledge, skills, or behaviors? And that, that might seem like a really unusual or lofty goal for an art museum to have. But I, I really believe that um, when people do have transformative experiences with art or in museums, they experience all of those things. And they're, those things happen to be pretty measurable mm -hmm. things. So, um, uh, so anyway, it's an exciting field. And I'm, I'm really excited to be at an academic museum now, yeah. too, where I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are interested in that type of research. I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's a, it's a hard thing to, I, I think if you had to sit down and write a, you know, a paper about the ways in which your life has been altered by experiences that you've had, yeah. I'll say me in museums, it, it, it would definitely have a correlation, I think, to discovery, to collaboration, to that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I keep going back to it, but I am very interested. How, how, how did you measure it or did you measure it? Do you ask people, how has your life been altered? Um, <laughs> Because, you know, yeah. I, I go back to the, the trip made a couple of months ago, you know, up to the Met, just, just because I felt like that's the thing I need to do right now. That is the thing that will link me back to humanity, to art for all time, to other people will, you know, and there were fewer people, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I mean, it was, in, it was like everything. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, how did you measure it or how do you measure it? Yeah, I know. Both that, at the Met and now, you know. Uh, it is tough. I mean, learning and that kind of experience that people have is a very latent type of train. Like even, even though the fMRI studies where we can actually see brain activity, if they're, you know, increasing by leaps and bounds, like we can't always like see how people are impacted. So we have to really rely on their behaviors or mm -hmm. what they're telling us. Um, so in different ways, in, in my um, school and for my dissertation, I ended up using a lot of tools in the area of psychological research that uh, sounds a little nefarious, but um, there are certain types of kind of subterfuge that you can use in psychological studies, um, you know, as, as long as they're approved um, by, <laughs> by an institutional <laughs> review board. I don't want people to think I started uh, giving people electric shocks or something yeah. like that. But um, but the, the task that I often had people do was not to actually talk about their own experiences because you can get all kinds of bias around that. 
but to actually um, set up some scenarios with surrogates. Um, so I, I had people uh, look at studies where there were two characters, uh, Robin and Chris, who were having an argument about two different works of art. And one was a really abstract painting, and the other was a more kind of traditional landscape painting that was very illusionistic. And I had subjects kind of talk about um, whether Robin or Chris were right in their arguments and the reasons for why they were right. And so kind of getting into how are people starting to form judgments about works of art? What kind of criteria are they um, pointing to? Are people completely subjective and saying, well, you know, art is in the eye of the beholder. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And so actually there's a whole area of uh, psychological research that's called epistemological development um, that people have uh, done a lot of interesting work in. And so I, I really kind of built on that, that field of study to apply it to aesthetic evaluations, aesthetic judgments. It's so funny as you're speaking, I had this idea of, it's the theater part, I guess, of, of being, say, at the Guggenheim, at the Met or whatever, and watching the intent way in which people observe mm -hmm. art and what happens to their body, what happens to their okay. face. That's part of what's really fun for me, yeah. is to particularly, uh, particularly in this space that I'm sitting in front of today, when you, when you walk up and down the spiral, and just to see what's going through people's bodies and how they're expressing yeah. that is just... Uh, like I thought, you know, you stood behind them, you know, and just tried to word bubble it or, right. you know. Well, you know, uh, some researchers work that way. They, you know, do kind of a rolling interview where people um, called a, a say aloud protocol, where people do try to give voice to what they're thinking right in that moment. Um, I have a, a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful friend and museum colleague, actually, who's also out of Philadelphia, went to UPenn, mm -hmm. um, and she wrote a fantastic book called The Social Work of Museums. And for her dissertation, she followed people around in museums. Oh. Uh, she looked at dyads or couples of people to see what do they talk about when they go to a museum. Mm -hmm. And she found that actually most people spend most of their time talking about themselves in museums, which I think is really fascinating if we think about museums being more as mirrors. Mirrors, right. As, you know, warehouses of the past. So that's fascinating. Is it yeah. sort of like this place? Yeah, I wondered about that. Would the conversations that you would be hearing be more about what's for dinner, where is Tom going to go to school, mm -hmm. or where is he not going to, you know, or and would a disproportion of that conversation, amount of that conversation, be not about the art at all, but the right. art as a frame yeah, for exactly. what is happening, you know, a safe place. You know, mm -hmm. something that you mentioned um, that I read that you had written um, was just to sort of, you know, make museums uh, more welcoming, that they can be, you know, off-putting or they can be. And, and I wonder, you know, because – and I shouldn't keep coming back to myself, but I do because that's the – you know, is that – it, how do, do we know that they aren't welcoming in that way? Or yeah. Do we really know that? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier, I, I worked down the street from where you are there at the Metropolitan Museum <laughs> of Art for almost 20 years. I really worked there for much of my career. And um, I'd say, gosh, how long ago was this now? About 10 years ago, 11 years ago, the Met did a really extensive um, audience engagement survey, um, really large scale, asking people questions um, as they exited the museum about their visit. 
And this was for a whole host of reasons. It was about kind of shaping a strategic plan for the museum. Um, it also was part of the rebrand that the Metropolitan went through a few years ago. Um, but one of the questions that really caused all of us to jump out of our seats when we read the responses were that 40% um, of the visitors said that while they had a good experience at the museum, they didn't think that the museum was for someone like them. And that was a really horrifying statistic that 40% of people would say that this is a nice place, but it's not for someone like me. Um, is really um, unsettling to think about, especially when you're overseeing education. <laughs> sure, <laughs> and kind of your yeah. whole uh, raison d'etre is to get people engaged and to have them be thinking about, you know, why do museums matter and why why should art matter in that case? So it it really um, rattled us, and so we really spent the next few years digging into that to see, well, what does that mean? Is it um, is it because of their facilitated experiences? Is it because of the, the silent pedagogies or the unspoken messages that museums give out? You know, whether it's mm -hmm. going up uh, an extensive set of marble steps at the front or, mm -hmm. or maybe the look that someone gives you at the information desk or, or the fact that there's, you know, very few places to sit down or, um, you know, um, things like that. You know, those are all messages that we receive about whether or not mm -hmm. we're welcome somewhere. So do you feel that it was when they said, this is not a place for, for me, mm -hmm. that was interpreted or you felt the interpretation of that is, I wasn't welcome here? Or does it reflect more back on the psychology of the person mm -hmm. giving the response saying like, I don't know how to interpret this, or I don't know what to make of this, or I'm confused, or I'm, and, and either way, it's, you know, as, as, as an educator, I guess it's your job to figure, you know, to, to make it, make it right, whatever that is. But I do, as you're talking, I do think oftentimes of people with um, absurdist material coming to the shows and saying, you know, I just didn't think this work was for me, or I've never enjoyed this work before until I saw you all, you know, somehow interpreting it, or I felt comfortable because it was an emotional journey I could take and, and feel like I had a universal experience. Yeah. No. You know? All of those things, all, all the questions that you're asking are ones that we wondered about. And, you know, we never found exactly, you know, what the, the precise reasons were. But I think people gave that response of they thought, well, you know, this isn't a place for me, probably on many levels. It might have been through the kind of experience they had. But it also can be... Um, you know, museums are not always reflective of the people that they hope to serve, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, in increasingly, um, you know, museums are trying to be more reflective of the world that we live in. Uh, they haven't always done a very good job of that um, based mm -hmm. on their complicated histories and elitist histories. So it could be that people self-identify, you know, they, they see themselves, like Lois Silverman would say, maybe they're talking about themselves and their own experiences and there's some disconnect mm -hmm. with what they're seeing on the walls or in the sculptures in a museum. Sure. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, I think that's why it's really critically important for us to all create bridges, you know, whether that means changing museums from the inside out um, or, um, you know, being able to help people uh, or to create a climate where transformative experiences 
can happen and where people can feel like, yes, these are places for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause you do wonder, is it, do people come wanting a solitary experience and then right. what happens, you know, do, do they come in groups and want to be, um, want, want to, to move around and have a group experience that way? Is there anything about taking it? Uh, I mean, and I want to I want to get to your work at Lehigh too, because in, in talking about how that's getting into the community and the and the ideas that you have for moving, um, moving um, moving forward uh, at the galleries at Lehigh, but um, is is taking the work out into the community when you have an institution and people are coming in? Is it is it successful if you try to move it out like you did at Lehigh? And we'll, we'll, I guess, why don't we talk, talk about the project you're working on there? <laughs> That's a sure. I mean, I think um, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, if there's a lesson that we all learn over and over again, is that you have to meet people where they are, you know, whether that's physically, like going out to them, or digitally, like, you know, finding out what are people interested in, where are they going, what platform are they using. Um, and, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think museums, like a lot of places, um, you know, for many years subscribe to a build it and they will come philosophy. And of course that doesn't always work. Um, and so, you know, I think going out into the community, not, not so much to um, feel like one is parachuting in to kind of save the community, but frankly, just to kind of be a good neighbor. <laughs> like, you know, we, sure. we all spend a lot of time where we work and where we live. And I think increasingly museums and arts organizations are just trying to be more um, participatory members of a community and a neighborhood and to say, you know, we're here too. You know, we want to interact with the people who are around us and who, you know, we want to learn from all of you. And so that kind of reciprocal relationship, um, I hope, is one that museums are really moving toward. Mm -hmm. What was the, um, oh gosh, let's see. Uh, we have a, I have a question for you here. But sure, we'll, yeah. Um, uh, still in the area of how you actually measure people's response mm -hmm. to art, what kinds of results seem to work when you apply for grants or funding or whatnot? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope I've got your question. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of things, this this probably won't surprise anyone here, but the you get greater results the deeper or the more frequent your intervention. So it's it's hard to really create substantive change with kind of short events or one-off events or you know a single experience. So um, at least the, re the studies that I'm um, familiar with and the ones that I conducted, you know, certainly the more contact that you can have with your intended audience and the more types of transformative experiences that you can offer in a consistent way, you're more likely uh, to have an impact. Um, you know, another aspect that, um, you know, people also measure, do a lot of measuring around is that there are forces in the world that have a big impact on people that have nothing to do with museums or arts experiences. And that has to do with educational backgrounds, socioeconomic status. And of course there's a, a ton of things packed into socioeconomic status. Um, but I think it's encouraging to see that museums are trying to break down some of those barriers. They're recognizing them. Um, and so, you know, because often what the kinds of transformations that we aim to see 
um, you know, they're ones that everyone should experience um, and not just people who are already in the habit of going yeah. to a museum. So part of the education involves just the introduction of, of, of maybe different ways of thinking about the mm -hmm. way in which art can impact and sort of changing our ideas about that. Is that, mm -hmm. I mean, what was the, what was the, um, the pot of gold for you in your thinking, um, in your, in what you were desiring when this opportunity came up for you at Lehigh, um, uh -huh. to leave New York and all of your schooling and, yeah, gosh, the pot of gold. That's a good way to think about it. Well, I, I mean, I had been at the Metropolitan for almost 20 years. Um, I had, I think I had, at the time, I had turned 45, I think, or 46. And I thought, you know, <laughs> I've been in this institution. And of course, as, as much as anyone can spend multiple lifetimes sure. in a place like the Guggenheim or the Metropolitan or, you know, one really can. Um, I thought, you know, I'm in the highest position I'm going to have in the institution. I've got another 25 years of work ahead of me at least. I really want to try something new. And if not now, when? Um, and I, I had been teaching already as an adjunct uh, down at NYU in their master's program and in some other programs in the past. And I thought, you know, I, I really like being in an academic environment. I like being surrounded by students that are asking great questions and are doing research. Um, I also wanted to try to spread my wings and try being a director. Um, and so when this position at Lehigh um, came about, that combined being a director of the art galleries, but also with a faculty appointment in the Department of Art, Architecture and Design, I just couldn't pass it up. Um, it just, you know, was uh, too perfect a position for me at this time. Um, and it's, it's also a really exciting place. You know, if any of your, your viewers are familiar with Bethlehem and the Lehigh Valley, it's um, fascinating. You know, the, uh, the now uh, dormant uh, blast furnaces of Bethlehem Steel they rise in the middle of town like a medieval cathedral. Um, and it's, it's a place that has making and creating and doing in the DNA of that area. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what, what better place than to come in as a director of an art museum and get to do some really fun, um, exciting things. So I've really been enjoying it. That's a, a really interesting I think way of thinking about it, you know, having grown up in the Midwest too, and there was just a lot of art happening in these small towns in Indiana, you know, because that's sure. what you do. You make things and create things and grow things and you, yeah. um, it's in the DNA, you know, yeah. that um, a lot of great bands coming out of you know, places. And, um, but I do think that's something in the, in the, in the, you know, in the, in all of that. Um, so the, being the director of a, of a, of a art gallery, um, you're curating, you're deciding what exhibitions are going to happen. You're curating. I'm interested in knowing what your day looks like being, uh, mm -hmm. sure. being a, a director of an art gallery. Sure. I mean, um, every day is different. Um, you know, I, I oversee the strategic direction of the art galleries. I, um, you know, work on what the exhibition schedule is going to be. Of course, I do things that maybe are not quite as exciting around <laughs> management and um, things like that. But, um, you know, what I find really exciting is that, you know, works of art, you know, they, 
they can be remarkably silent unless they are activated in some way. You know, mm-hmm. part of that activation is bringing them out of storage. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we try to do that as much as we can or digitize them or both. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in creating a climate where people can have these cathartic experiences and transformative experiences. Um, when I started at Lehigh, we also uh, recommitted ourselves to um, mounting exhibitions and doing programs that were about timely and relevant issues, things that people were talking about and concerned about and interested in. Um, so the first real show that I did um, last year, fall of 2019, was um, a show by two artists, um, Margaret and Christine Wertime, who are from Australia. Um, and the show is called Crochet Coral Reef. And they're um, identical twin sisters. Uh, Margaret is a mathematician um, by training. And her sister, Christine, is a visual artist. She teaches at CalArts in Southern California now. And they work together to collaboratively crochet coral reefs in these really intricate, large-scale, rambling constructions that fill the gallery. And then they invite communities to create their own crochet coral reefs. And so it speaks to not only the issue of climate change, um, but it also speaks to the nature of what is art and it's very performative in nature and it's very much about community. And there's also a lot of interesting intersections around gender and around um, craft versus art. And so it it was a really transformative experience for me. Um, I hope for many people, Um, we're really proud that over the past two years, we've increased our attendance by 86% at the art galleries. So that's been really exciting to see. Um, and then with this exhibition that I'm happy to talk about on, on today of all days, <laughs> um, and that exhibition is called Doing Democracy, um, and it's on view right now at the art galleries at Lehigh. Um, and it's an exhibition that features photographs from our permanent collection that shows what it means to do democracy in all different ways, whether it's civil rights protests or global leaders or everyday Americans engaged in different activities. Um, And so that's a show that, of course, we're particularly excited about right now. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) On that. How did you work to get um, uh, this increase in attendance that you, that's, that's, that's a great, a great, is great. How did, how did you go about doing that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's multiple factors. I should say I have a fantastic team. Um, You know, we are a small but very ambitious, dedicated team uh, of seven people. Um, And so Mark Wansidler, our curator of exhibitions and collections, Stacey Brennan, our curator of education, um, but all of my staff members, they they work very collaboratively and in a very thoughtful way to think about, you know, how, how do we really maximize the public value of what we're doing? So we have increased our public programming. We've also um, met people where they are uh, by going to them. Um, we've started advisory groups, including a student advisory group that has about 30 members at this point, which is great. You know, um, they, they tell it, like it is, um, and tell us what they're interested in. Um, And, you know, also, of course, great partners in the community from um, Bethlehem Area School District to 
Um, last fall, we became great friends with a knitting and crochet store that facilitated our workshops with Crochet Coral Reef. Um, so I, I think, you know, like, like all aspects of work, it's really about building relationships. So do you have, um, like, so you have student advisors that will sort of weigh in on what they want to see also in the gallery. And there are people going out into the community as well to, to just make sure that people are aware of what's happening and know that it's accessible to them and um, sort of like knocking on doors, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, getting out the vote. Is that, is that kind of a way of looking yeah, at it? Absolutely. So I, mean, I, I believe and our, our team really believes that um, museums uh, like democracies, they work best when people participate. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they get better the more people use them. And so, um, you know, our team regularly goes outside the walls to meet with people, to join committees around town, to, um, you know, also participate in other people's creative work. Um, we do a lot of listening. Um, and then with this exhibition called Doing Democracy, we, we have a unique opportunity to actually put part of the exhibition outside. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we have the, the main exhibition, which is on view in our main gallery located in Zollner Art Center. Um, but we also have 22 reproductions of photographs on these uh, billboards, these placards that go along the South Bethlehem Greenway, um, which is a kind of former rail to trail, um, popular jogging and skateboarding path. Um, and, and so you can see these works of art on the Greenway, and then you can also point your smartphone at their QR codes and listen to an audio guide created by Lehigh students about the photographs. And I think that's particularly exciting because, you know, these are emerging adults, um, many of them voters now, um, and they are future leaders, no matter what field they go in. And I think it's really exciting um, and critical for us to know, you know, why should they care about looking at these photographs from the 1950s and 60s? Like getting them engaged with that material and understanding them both as great works of art, but also as historical moments, I think is, is really important, particularly now that we're living in um, historic moments right now of change. Mm -hmm. um, museums help us put that into a context. The study, and there have been many, but I'm thinking the one that um, from the University of Pennsylvania talking about the, the wellness and how it's been demonstrated, obviously, that art is really important for wellness in a community. Um, it seems to me like pulling the art out in the way that you just described it, like just plopping it, not plopping it, but you know, that's, that was not a good word, but putting it down and saying like, here it is, and then really making it approachable and accessible. And then in the ways that you talked about initially, that you may not exactly know the way in which it's changing your life, but at the end of the day, you just might in your mind cognitively feel as though you're a little bit smarter than you were at the beginning of that day, or a little bit more connected to the process and a little bit more empowered in that process. I love the idea of it being out in the community. Uh, 
Absolutely. And I, I mean, I have to say, I'm, um, uh, I didn't invent this idea. In fact, some of it is really inspired by an incredibly um, well-received program that the Detroit Institute of Arts uh, did several years ago called Inside Out, where they reproduced key works from their collections and put them all over Detroit. Um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art has done it recently. Um, but you're absolutely right. Like sometimes the more contact that we have with art, even if it's kind of peripheral in some way, like maybe we're just skateboarding by it or jogging by it, yeah. it's powerful and it can change the way that we think about art. Um, I think it also shines a spotlight on some fundamental questions about, you know, where does art happen like where does the experience of art really happen like does it mm -hmm. does it always happen in our galleries in a museum i know for me personally like some of the most powerful experiences i've had with art or with a performance or with the film was not even right in that moment it might mm -hmm. have been days or weeks or months later where i was thinking back on it and i thought wow like wait a minute mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's what uh, that artist was trying to say, or this reminds me of this scene from this performance. Mm -hmm. And I think honestly, the more, the more art that we get into our lives, you know, I think there's the potential for us to see the world differently. Um, so I think it's, it's a really exciting uh, value proposition. That's such a fascinating thing to uh, idea to consider the ways in which it hits you at that moment. And then what happens, you know, coming out of the thrift drug in South Philadelphia, I don't know, a month or so ago and, lo and looked up and there was a big mural arts, um, uh, you know, mural on the side of this old building that I had never noticed before. And it was in the middle of COVID and it was just one of those days, you know, and just thinking like how astonishing it was and how beautiful it was. And it really made an enormous difference in my day, you know, and I thought, thank, thank, thankfully, thank, thank, uh, to be so thankful for art in all its many ways here in Philadelphia and, and, you know, and around the country. It's interesting to think about it in that way. How does it hit you in that moment? And then what does it do to your psyche for, for the rest of, you know, your day, your week, your, your world? Um, oh gosh, let's see. Um, well, I have a, there's one question here I want to get to in a second, but I, I want to ask you, so, you know, having spent a fair amount of time in New York, uh, you know, up on, uh, up there, uh, um, when you, now you grew up in Virginia, so that was, you know, that's a different environment. But do you think there's something to, and what is that something, to the energy that a city hmm. brings to the brain, to the ideas, to the foment of, not the foment, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Sure. Um, the bubbling of all of that versus say where you are now, you know, mm -hmm. in, um, in, in, yeah. in a more rural setting. Yeah. You know, you feel different. It does. I mean, in some ways it's familiar to me because, you know, growing up, I grew up in such a rural area where you really had to kind of look to yourself to, you know, um, uh, ignite your own creativity and sometimes working within those constraints actually kind of created more opportunities. Like, you know, you, mm -hmm. you didn't have an art supply store to go to and there, there was no internet then to order it from. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, so you had to kind of come up with your own creative materials there. You know, I, I love cities and, you know, I, um, I love New York. And in fact, uh, where you are right now on 88th Street there, at the Guggenheim, <laughs> we, we keep an apartment on 88th Street just down the block um, from the Guggenheim. So we're back and forth in New York a lot. 
But honestly, um, our, our other home is in Bucks County, just south of where Lehigh is. And it's, we're in a very rural area. We're fortunate to be next to a state park. Uh, lots of wildlife, um, often uh, trying to come inside of our house. <laughs> but um, They love art too. So. Oh yeah, everyone's welcome, I guess. Um, but you know, for, for me anyway, I feel like I appreciate the city and the country more when I can kind of toggle back and forth between both. Yeah. Um, I, I think like a lot of people, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Manhattan because mm -hmm. it's, I, I love everything that it offers. But honestly, you know, one of the reasons too why I shifted gears is, you know, working 20 years at the Metropolitan, I really worked 24-7. Yeah. I, I really did not stop working. And that was the expectation. Yeah, you know, sure. Everyone there worked all of the time. And so even though I loved being in New York, it actually was really pretty rare that I got out to walk up the street to the Guggenheim where you are or to um, go see a show or things like that. And so, um, you know, I think, um, you know, getting some perspective and getting some distance can be really helpful, at least for me, um, to balance out all of that kind of creative energy. Mm -hmm. Do you have a studio now? I do somewhat. I've, <laughs> I've, um, I have kind of a, a studio space in my garage. I have a studio um, in my basement. Um, I, I sort of have a studio in our dining room, which annoys my husband to no end because I have piles of things everywhere. Um, but it's, you know, space is an issue. You know, I... Um, even when I was in Manhattan, like when I was in the World Trade Center, I was fortunate to have a really huge studio on the 91st floor. But then after that, you know, I had a tiny, tiny space in the basement of, on East 5th Street and Bowery. Um, and it, uh, it's kind of amazing how that affects your work. <laughs> yeah, yes. Constraint oh, yeah. is everything. Absolutely. Uh, or a lot of it. Um, yeah. Do you, what's your, 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 the medium you enjoy most? Hmm. Do you have a favorite or? Yeah, I mean, I, I move across different media, but I, I always tend to come back to more two-dimensional work. So I, I work quite a bit in drawing and painting mm -hmm. um, are really, I think, my where I self-identify. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just ran across the book, Drawing on the, is it Right Side of the Brain? Oh, sure. Is it right, right. I just pulled it out. It's like 30 years old or however old it is. You know, I pulled it out. I was uh, like, I really need to go back to this again and really um, sort of yeah. just take the time to really see things and see things well, in the way they are as opposed to not, not to kind of squeeze in a little bit of marketing here but i'll do that speaking of drawing and actually a lot of the concepts that betty edwards talks about in that book which are kind of philosophical in nature mm -hmm. um we're going to be doing an exhibition at lehigh next fall fall of 21 called thinking through drawing and it's um, all about how people use drawing as a tool for thinking in different ways. So not only solving aesthetic problems like preparatory sketches or um, making drawings out in the world, but also how do people use drawing as a way to make the invisible visible or to um, problem solve. So mm -hmm. we're really excited about that. So I hope you'll come up. And oh, I would that. love to be a, yeah, I might definitely want to. I was like, I'll be in that class. Yeah, please. <laughs> That'd be great. Our, our, our goal is to get everyone in the whole region uh, drawing. So we're going oh. to see if we can meet that goal. <laughs> Do you think 
there's still a, a, a distance from what you can see in the idea that creativity is not for everybody, mm. that, that people like are, you know, grow up thinking that you're either creative or you aren't, but, um, but maybe not under, you know, not being exposed to the ideas that there's just creative acts in everything we do. And then right. just, I mean, do you, yeah. it sort of feels like this is, I, I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not seeing it from a different perspective, but that there's this idea that there's creative people and that there's not, you know, and yeah. it's complicated. I mean, I think, I mean, that's a whole field of research in and of itself. I think, you know, different views about creativity, like a lot of people who are, um, human uh, developmental psychologists would say, you know, everyone is, starts out very creative. Um, there's usually a, a turn that happens, mm-hmm. like often around third or fourth grade, where people um, are much more reluctant to express themselves. This also has to do with peer acceptance. It has to do with the formal education system that we're living in here in the United States. Um, But other people too, like I would say some of it has to do with mindset. Um, You know, a really popular researcher who focuses on this work is Carol Dweck out of Stanford. And she really studies, you know, um, whether it's creativity or whether it's other areas, you know, how does our mindset, like what we tell ourselves about what we're good at, how Mm -hmm. does it affect whether or not we're really good at something? Um, and, you know, similarly, whether or not we praise people or, or how we praise people or not based on how they're doing or what they're doing can really affect um, how well they do. So I'm, I'm a believer in, you know, things are not so fixed, you know, things mm-hmm. are pretty malleable. The, the human brain is pretty malleable. Um, but I think it's a matter of, you know, how do we um, get the kinds of experiences that we need to bring that out? And so I think that's probably why, like you, like why I've found myself in the arts um, as, you know, a way to do that. Well, and it seems like your, your, the passion that you really have is very clear to, to help people understand the ways in which they can find their ways into these transformative experiences. Because I do think when you have a brush and a love with art, you know, it's, it's like running or anything else. Like it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that, you know, you may not be able to describe, but it is in, in there for you and, and affecting, um, you know, in affecting your life. Yeah. What, what do you see as, um, uh, what's on the horizon in terms of the, 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 the things that you want to accomplish at Lehigh in the next year or so. Ooh, from this exciting exhibit uh, that we all want to see. Um, I mean, a number of things. Like we, you know, are are really excited to be mounting exhibitions and offering programs that, you know, really, uh, you know, help people have transformative experiences with art, whatever that means for them. Um, last year, we also spent a lot of time uh, rewriting our mission statement. And so our, our mission statement is now that we advance critical thinking, cultural understanding, and well-being for campus and communities. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, this idea of art um, being a vehicle for increased well-being for individuals and communities is something that we're really excited about. 
Um, Lehigh has launched a new College of Health, and so we're in close conversation with them about, you know, how can the art galleries play a role in that? Mm -hmm. um, so those are all things that we're really excited about. Um, something that we're in very, very early days of talking about and is um, not formally approved, I should say, as a disclaimer here, um, but we, we are in early conversations about what would it look like for Lehigh to build a new standalone art museum on campus that would be both a philosophical and functional bridge between the campus and the community. Um, and so we're really excited about that. Uh, you know, we're at almost 17,000 works of art at Lehigh from diverse time periods and cultures. And um, we just really want to maximize the possibilities that it has to offer. So would it physically proximity wise be more like f further towards the community? When you say bridge, is that part of it? So they don't have to. You know, it's funny about um, almost about exactly 100 years ago, <laughs> there was a great museum educator um, named John Cotton Dana, who worked at the Newark Museum in New Jersey. And he talked about um, museums need to be where people are, as we've discussed. And he said, you know, they really should be more like a great department store. <laughs> um, Bambergers had opened in Newark at that time. And he actually was saying all of this, too, to kind of disparage other museums that had moved away from the population mm -hmm. into beautiful parks uh, like the Metropolitan had done. It, had, it mm -hmm. had moved from its 14th Street location up to Central Park. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm a believer in really museums being conveners and catalysts and places that intermingle everyone in a community. Mm -hmm. So, um, so as beautiful as the Lehigh campus is, and actually as many acres as Lehigh has, um, I would envision that this museum would be um, straddling the campus mm -hmm. and the local community on the south side of Bethlehem. I know very little about this, but are there not in Japan um, lots of, and probably in other cities as well, and I just haven't had the fortune to be there, but I, I thought I remember hearing a lot about that being a thing where it's like an art gallery in the middle of Tokyo and it's also a this and a that yeah. and a whatever and you can't miss it. I mean, yeah. in other words, you're going to go through it whether you're on your way to get your whatever it is you're getting and then you're sort of surrounded by it. So the experience is built in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's um, a lot of places have experimented with that. A, a few years ago, I was in uh, the Emirates in Dubai and actually, they were um, experimenting with some of that at the Mall of the Emirates, where they had, you know, art exhibitions. Um, and actually, a, a great friend of mine who's a wonderful museum director, Victoria Ramirez, um, she's building a new museum for the Arkansas Arts Center down in Little Rock. And they've temporarily moved into a shopping center. And, um, you know, of course, the pandemic is not really helping things at the moment. But in principle, you know, I think it's a really interesting idea to think about, you know, where do we meet people where they are? How do we engage people in their day-to-day -day experiences and not be these kind of rarefied, mm -hmm. um, isolated places? Destination where you kind of have to really sort of make, make your own journey, if you will. <laughs> exactly. Um, if, if I were a high school student right now and I were wanting to, you know, and I were going off to college and I, I were thinking about being a fine artist is there any it's a broad question but is there any 
anything that you learned from that time that has served you well? Yeah. I'm sure there I mean, are many things, but. I mean, I think this is such a, maybe an obvious one that everyone says, but there's really no substitute for making your work and creating your work and, um, and prioritizing it, you know, mm -hmm. making sure that you have time to create your work all of the time. Um, because, you know, there are many things that will vie for your attention <laughs> mm -hmm. over your life, you know, whether it's, um, you know, part of your job or uh, going to the grocery store or doing the dishes. And I mean, I think that's really the single biggest piece of advice, because if, if you really are meant to be an artist, if that is your calling, you should listen to that calling and you should um, make that time to, to keep making your work and to struggle with it and to show it to people when possible. Um, and there, there's really no substitute for that. Would you consider yourself pretty structured in your approach, both maybe then and more recently in your approach to art? Do you still make time to create art? Do you feel that that's something you need to be doing? I do. Actually, maybe that's one silver lining of the pandemic. I've, I have gotten back into my drawings and my paintings. So I've been, I think like a lot of people right now, I've been kind of returning to that creative practice as an outlet and as a way to de-stress and as a way to reconnect with what I am passionate about. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that that continues even in a post-COVID era. <laughs> Yeah, me too. I just, you know, I just looked up because I don't have a clock. So I looked on the computer. and I was like, oh, it's 555. Oh, no, he has to go to dinner. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I just have been so enjoyed finding out uh, about all the great work you're doing. William, thank you so Thanks. much for taking the time to come on into the absurd. And I really am excited about the work you're doing at Lehigh. I can't wait for next fall. And um, as we all work through this together, like you said, um, to try to do our work, do our art during this time. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, yeah. It was a great guy. I, I thought we had 20 more minutes, so I looked up. And, uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I, I really look forward to, to seeing what's to come at Lehigh. Thanks. Thanks so much. Stay well, everyone. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. You too. And thanks to you for being with us this evening. And uh, we do wish you a very well week ahead. On next week's show, Lane Savadov will be with us. Lane is the artistic director and founder of Egopo Classic Theater here in Philadelphia. And I'm going to talk to him about the work that uh, they are planning. They have a, a season coming up, and I want to get it right here. So I'm going to say it's called Isolations, Radically Intimate Theater Events Experienced in Social Isolation. So we're going to talk to him about that season coming up, his work uh, all throughout the years uh, that has gone into the work that he now does at Egopo, his studies with Lee Brewer at Mabu Mines and Ping Chong and, oh gosh, his work in Viewpoints and Anne Bogart at City Company. So there's a lot on the table next week with Lane Savadov. We'll be here on Saturday at 5 p.m. if you're on the IRC's mailing list. Look for an email from us this week. If not, head on over to the IRC's website and sign up for our mailing list and um, keep up to with what's happening. We're going to be here at 5 p.m. Saturdays from here into the near future talking to the people who are passionate and doing really interesting things in our community, keeping us together, keeping us thinking and curious. With that in mind, wishing you a very safe and a very celebratory week ahead.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.